good afternoon fellow green men and women of the other faces thank you for returning and thank you for waiting as you will know that this episode is a little bit delayed because i sir buckley have been quite ill <laughs> with the flu and i'm aware that my voice is not all that nice sounding in the first place i did not want to subject you to further sniffs and coughs and horrible sounding things uh, still under the weather not quite healed but we've run out of time it's already saturday so we're going to try and whiz through this episode and not subject you to too many horrible noises from me instead we'll just get through this episode through seven chapters today extra chapter aren't we lucky and get ready for history of westeros's live episode tomorrow and a new episode coming from us on wednesday so hopefully i will sound a bit better by then so yes, hello, I am Sir Buckley, talking to you from a very rainy, rainy England, and uh, I guess that makes sense given my current health situation. Of course, if it does happen that I'm doing a, a kind of Phoebe thing here and I actually sound better with a cold, do let me know and I'll go and stand out in the uh, in the rain for you before I record each week. Alright, let's get on. I'm going to try and whiz through this because, like I say, Saturday, need to get it out for everyone. So first off, what chapters are we looking at today? It is a heavy Tyrion day, heavy uh, King's Landing vibe, but again, seven chapters, so we get a nice variety. We start off with Tyrion 3. The one where Tyrion starts talking about is Chain, which is getting very exciting. Brand 2, the one with Wyo Mandalay and all the Northern Lords gathering to talk to young Bran. Tyrion 4 is the one with Tyrion's nice little trick of three, telling three different stories. Very famous chapter, that one. Sansa 2 where Sansa goes to the Godswood and makes or starts thinking about a new ploy to get out of King's Landing. Aya 5, oh dear, the mountains in town, things somehow get worse for Aya. Tyrion 5, where Tyrion's trick is revealed and uh, he clashes with Cersei a little bit more. And finally Bran 3, the one with the Harvest Feast, the Reeds, and some more Wyman Mandalay. Yes, we are lucky. Lucky, lucky souls. Let's get straight into notes for Tyrion 3. Actually Aziz on Sunday he used even more of my notes than usual so uh, I must be doing something right which makes it a bit easier to get through these today. So the first thing is uh, this chapter opens with the receiving of Stannis's letter from last week and uh, the small council arguing how to best deal with that and the effects we spoke of last week they have they've occurred and they have happened. It's riling up the uh, the small folk they're starting to listen Spooks the nobles a bit because they don't know how to how to deal with it without validating it, I suppose. And I think the small folk, they're just seizing on the fact that someone's actually talking to them for once. They live in a city where they're crying out for food, as we're going to see for the rest of today's episode. Crying out for food, crying out for just someone to listen to their problems, and they instead get Joffrey. So then there's this Stannis person who's actually addressing and valuing them. And whether that Stannis actually <laughs> feels that or not, that's the impression he's given. And that's the one they're going to seize on. And Tyrion, he still can't quite tap into that thinking of how to use the small folk, placate the small folk and get them on side. He's not completely oblivious in that respect, but Stannis actually has him beat on this. Maybe maybe Tyrion needs uh, Davos to be his hand's hand. That would work well. Now, uh, yeah, the small council, they're arguing about what to do. And Cersei, she's hot off the mark. She wants something done. I do think if Cersei wants to keep her own incest secret, she probably... She should try not bringing up incest immediately as a possible rumour to fight back against Stannis with. Straight away. Oh, I know. I've got a good idea. Incest. Oh, what did you think of that one, Cersei? And we're going to see that exact same line of thinking later on in Feast of Crows 
with Marjorie and Loris. It's just Cersei's go-to. I guess work with what you know. Now later on, Tyrion moves on to his meeting with the uh, smiths and the merchant, uh, the workmen of uh, King's Landing, because he's building the chain. And I think we're all a good fan of the chain. I really like the chain. It's a good addition. But before we get that, we see the Tyrion. He's acting very differently towards Pod now. In Game of Thrones, when he initially met Podrick, he was quite angry, quite rude to him. Not so much now. I think probably that's because Tyrion's just happier. Back on the Green Fork, where he thought his dad was going to have him killed in a battle, Tyrion was not very happy. And he'd just come out of uh, living in the in the sky cells of the Eyrie, so not in the best of moods. Now, he's running the gauntlet. He loves being in King's Landing. He loves his new role. He's got his protectors. He's got Shay squirreled away somewhere. He's living the life. So he's just a bit nicer to pod. We also get a good look at Cersei's own strategy of dealing with these same men, and it's more... The I'll smash your hand strategy, which is really not a good idea uh, before a potential siege where the people with the smashed hands are going to be stood between Cersei and that enemy at the gates. So and at least Tyrion recognises that much. He's not doing that bad. Then again, he does, two seconds later, he does threaten to chain them up if they don't uh, agree and work for him and make up his own chain. So not that different. This whole chapter has me thinking that Tyrion's interactions with these merchants and uh, guildsmen and whoever else and the small folk especially they could have just all gone so much better he's actually doing a lot to help feed the small folk and to help protect them against the oncoming siege he knows what a sacking could mean for them but no one knows it which makes them hate him they all think he's doing nothing for them and that hate makes him hate them and, and it just goes on and on and on until it comes to a head in in the storm of swords of his trial if Tyrion just believed in himself a little bit more and gone public with, hey, look, I'm feeding you, and hey, look, I'm making this defence, though obviously can't be blabbing about his chain too much because uh, word does get out, but he can definitely drum up a bit more public support, and if he had received that same support back from, um, from the public, not only makes the defence of the city easier later on, but makes the decision to behead him much more difficult for the Lannisters post-Blackwater. If they had known what Tyrion had done for them, they wouldn't be quite so, or you'd like to think, they wouldn't be quite so eager to have his head chopped off. But uh, unfortunately Tyrion doesn't have that, that self-belief or doesn't quite see the worth in the small folk yet. Uh, last note for this chapter, like I said, we're really going to try and whiz through today. I've been saying throughout Clash of Kings that there's three religions introduced in this book, but we actually get a little bit on the Summer Islanders and their religion in this, uh, in this chapter. Just a tidbit, but it's worth mentioning. Okay, on to Brand 2, which has the, the two Walders being little shits again. It has all the Northern Lords coming to talk to Bran. It's got poor Danella Hornwood uh, breaking down the Herbad situation and uh, why the Manderley appears, etc., etc. Pretty good chapter just for setting the, setting the story. I'm going to talk about the Walders being pricks first. So, Maester Lewin, he has to kind of break character here to approve of Bran telling the Walders off when they're being mean, mean to Hodor. Publicly, he kind of just shames all of them, but afterwards he has to whisper to Bran, oh, actually, well done, yeah, they were being, they deserved that. And it's just nice to see uh, Lewin kind of break his public face a little bit and get that closer, closest of Bran because they're going to miss that scene enough. A bit later in the, in the chapter as well, Bran, he gets a bit shirty about the Walders making their impersonalised sigils, but it didn't occur to me you got to think this is a really common uh, thing done, done down at the Twins. They've all got to be having personalised mixed sigils, haven't they? Because it's going to be very confusing otherwise for the amount of phrase. But that's, uh, I, dig I digress. 
the, the biggest part of this chapter is Wyman Mandley, who uh, I've covered for History of Westeros before. He's a big, big character. If only we had the time to talk about him properly now. But in the scope of this chapter, I think he's he's really advocating for the Mandleys to become the second biggest house in the North, or the most important. He's really showing off his ambition straight away. It's ambitious, but it's also things that need to be thought of. His ideas for an independent North and the, the details of that, no one else seems to have really addressed. And it's a shame uh, Roger, Sir Roderick brushes him off in the same way he does everyone else. If he had taken a little bit of initiative and got Wyman working on all these suggestions, it could have made a huge difference to the war. Uh, I think we've spoken about the what a difference a northern fleet would have made to Rob's campaign. Good job, Wyman. He eventually does it anyway. So I do hope that fleet comes into play somewhere. Maybe with Davos, he's still around, or some kind of max ev evacuation or rescue of the north if the others come, or maybe from above the wall. Who can say? But that, let's hope. And another note on the Mandleys, there's some more evidence of knighthood being a, a mandatory trait that the family brought up from the south of them because it seems to have slowly spread to their surrounding lands as well so it's interesting to see their their influence there it's interesting the the umbers they complain that they have too much food to even harvest and it's going to go to waste and it's we're really getting some different ends of the spectrum here aren't we we've been just been in king's landing where they're already starting to starve we've had ayers chapters where the whole of the riverlands is going up and no one's eating and all the way up here in the north which traditionally is the place that doesn't have any food or has to work hardest to get it at least. And they've got too much, just really different <laughs> different ends of the spectrum. Now the other big thing from this chapter, which probably doesn't actually seem that big in the chapter itself, but it has the one of the largest knock-ons, is poor Donella Hornwood and her situation and what's going to happen there. And that whole situation has me thinking about Aya and Catelyn as well, because last week... We had Aya thinking about how knights were supposed to protect women, and other times Catelyn has spoken about the role of men in her life. I think it might be in Storm or possibly later in Clash. She says about her husband and her father and her brother, and their, their job is to protect her. So Donella, she's lost her, uh, I think it's just her husband and her son, but they were there to protect her, and she's now exposed, as we're going to see very soon. And there's no true knights to protect her. Any knights or the northern equivalent, they're more thinking about what they can get out of her. So those two quotes are really showing across the board here. She's really got the, the vultures swarming around her. And we're gonna, I'm going to talk about this more next week when we get to the next Theon chapter. But the arguments over the Hornwood lands, at the moment they're, they seem tertiary. They're not even, okay, Hornwoods, do it. This is the first Hornwood we've really come across. It doesn't seem like a big part of the North. Who cares? But the the arguments that they're going to turn into, or the actual conflict that they're going to turn into, it's enough to distract the North from the bit bigger threat of the Ironborn invasion. And if that hadn't come about, if they weren't arguing over Hornwood lands and etc. etc., Sir Roderick didn't have to be dealing with that. Who knows what what defence they could have made against Fionn and and the others? So but again, more of that next week. And it is sweet that they have that little nod to Donella kind of liking Roderick and Roderick kind of liking Donella but then nothing can come of it and that's a, a theme throughout this chapter Bran he can't be a knight but he acts knightly to Hodor Roderick he can't be a husband to a, a woman of that 
station, but he acts husbandly to Donella, or more so than anyone else. He actually cares about what she wants, not just what land she can bring. And it's a, kind of, a sad chapter overall, really, at the ending. We do get a preview of the cast of characters who are going to be in and around Winterfell later on in Dance, much, much later on. The Remainers, the Survivors, you've got your Moors and your Wyman, and they're talking about Ramsay. Closer to home in the, at this current time, it's a real sad situation. It's probably one of the harder chapters to reread really because we've got Lewin and Roderick and Bran all working really hard to keep the situ- keep the situation going, keep Winterfell running, but we know how things are going to end up by the close of the book, so we know this is a um a timed happiness. Okay, on back to Tyrion already. We're on to Tyrion 4. I think this is really the Tyrion chapter, isn't it? Especially of this book. Whenever anyone wants to point to Tyrion's greatest strength, his political highlight, they are normally talking about this chapter, the famous chapter with uh, Tyrion running rings around Pycelle and Littlefinger and Varys and giving his three stories and it was a very easily memorable chapter, which uh, Aziz went through at great length, so I don't need to focus specifically on these three stories too much, but Tyrion's reaching out to Dawn, specifically offering them peace and justice it opens the door for a whole bunch of storylines later on. We're not going to see them for a while. The only interaction we get with Dawn in this book is when Marcella leaves. And we didn't in Game of Thrones, obviously, either. So they're still very much on the periphery. Or not even there further back than that. We just haven't seen anything of them at all. But this is the seeds for the Dornish storyline of not just Oberyn and King's Landing, but also Balan Swan being sent down with, quote marks, uh, Greg Walker gains skull and uh, Abara Sand coming up and interacting in whatever way she is going to in the future. All of that can be traced back to Tyrion's first move here, so it's really fun to go back and see where uh, these seeds are first planted. Now, I know Aziz talked a lot about Littlefinger. I'm just going to uh, insert some notes here. So, firstly, I can't I can't go past him boasting about both the Tully girls and not mention it. He's still just continuing his, uh, his game plan from Game of Thrones, where he just has to get a jab in and make a boast or uh, just constant little finger i don't know why i'm noticing it so much more on this reread but i definitely am and it definitely annoys me having said that the explanation we get of how little finger operates and how he's got into his position i do find it very interesting as usage of people in positions that no one normally pays attention to you know the details and the the admin the logistics people but little finger has seen how to use them it's a route rarely traveled and it really buys into that idea of no one seeing him coming because he's coming from a route that no one would normally look for. That's how he's protected himself. He's just not only coming out of the shadow, so to speak, but he's also now too important to get rid of in a hurry. He's really integrated himself into the very being. You can't just get rid of him because it will actually wreck up your your city and your regime. I do like that Tyrion he's able to kind of actually draw out or get rid of some of the composure when he starts mentioning uh, Harrenhal and you can just see Littlefinger's eyes light up when there's any kind of possibility of climbing that ladder. He really starts hanging on Tyrion's every word. I did I did want to talk about the the knife thing, and but I'm going to have to abandon that because it just annoys me that Tyrion never quite, never quite acts on any of that. It constantly seems like Tyrion reminds himself how dangerous Littlefinger is whenever he sees him, whether he's in his presence, but then he forgets about him as soon as he walks out the door. And I wonder if that's a case of Cersei and Stannis and the attack just being more pressing, 
Or does Littlefinger's game plan of, I'm just a nobody, I can't be a threat, work, actually work on Tyrion better than anyone else, even if Tyrion doesn't realise it? It just doesn't doesn't quite click that Littlefinger's the true danger. We've been talking a lot about the food situation already in all three of these chapters, and it, this chapter specifically, it reminds me of Tywin's camp by the Green Fork, where they had, I think it was like suckling pork or something for the officers, but for the troops, uh, you might remember, Bronda said to forage for them, just caught some trout. So but you look after yourself, but also die for me tomorrow in this battle that means nothing to you, but I'm not going to feed you beforehand. Very much the same kind of thing between castle and small folk here. The castle, they obviously have food and there's a wedding feast going on and the small folk, they do not. The city, they do not. And that's only going to get worse. So the writing really is on the wall now for the for riots and revolution and Joffrey. He's just never going to figure out what part he has in that little circle he just doesn't even know that that's why they're angry at him i don't think or he doesn't care one or the other okay so that's Tyrion four we're staying in king's landing we're going to sansa two obviously that's where she gets the note for the first time she has to think about whether she's going or not she obviously chooses she chooses to do so in the end she goes and meets or re-meets dontas hollard uh sir dontas and uh, later talks to Sandok again on the way back as well. And straight from the off, there is some incredible bravery with that decision to actually go to the Godswood and, and to take a knife as well. That, that is a form of bravery because if she gets discovered walking around the castle with a knife, what do we think is going to happen to her? She's already receiving full hits in the stomach with mailed fists for, for doing nothing. So she's walking around the castle with a knife. What They're probably going to be using that knife. And yeah, that, oh God, that punch in the stomach with a mailed fist, a mailed fist, that would send most of us, certainly me, would send me to the floor whimpering, and Sandra just has to just take it, just get used to it. It's impossible to uh, to really appreciate what she's going through here. Now, like I said, so this chapter has both Sir Dontos and Sandor again at the end, so there's a real duality of the knights between those two. And it sets up Sansa's later choice at the end of the book, who to run away with. She can go with Sandor, she can hold back and hope Dontos is going to deliver. And that's the one she chooses in the end. But it's very interesting how both of them aren't real knights. Well, so Dontos is a real knight, but obviously he, he's not really. Uh, they aren't really knights and they have some comparable personal problems in terms of the, the drinky and uh, the past. But they both use what they have to survive in this court system. Dontos, he's been given this chance by Sansa to survive as a fool, and he takes it and runs with it. Sandor has his physique and aggressiveness and everything else, and he uses that. That's just what they've got to do. In the same way that Sansa doesn't have much, but what she does have, she's using to survive. They're all very similar. And talking of that later choice for Sansa, really, it's a choice between, does she go with the one who can protect her more, or the one who can do her less harm? And that's a, that's a really sad thing to note that that's ultimately her choice. It's a very sad choice of, okay, she could go with Sandor because he could protect her better, but she could protect herself better from Dontos. And what what a mindset for a 12, 13-year-old girl to have to have. Now, again, there's more talk of Joffrey and the, and the small folk and the food are really hitting us over the head with it in these couple of chapters to, to get it across. Well, this whole beginning of the book, really. And Joffrey, like I said, he has no clue. Probably never a good idea to go off hunting small folk and shooting your crossbow at them. But considering the political climate and the, the fact that there's four other kings floating around and that it's never been clearer that kings are temporary and you can choose which one you're going to follow and that the royalty actually need the subservience of the small folk, 
He's really chucking the Lannister dynasty away here by his reaction to starving people, his his choice to react by shooting them. And speaking of this, the food situation is uh, interesting that we're getting the knock-on effects from Aya's early chapters where she saw these people coming out of the Riverlands on the King's Road towards the city and now Sansa's telling us that they're, they're all there and arrived and that there's too many people, there's refugees in the city. So it's more just great linking between chapters from George. Now, come to the Godswood if you want to go home. That becomes Sansa's personal mental tip in the same way that Jamie has his, his moon boy thing and Daenerys has if I look back then I'm lost and a lot of characters have these these type of things that they keep repeating to themselves. Aya's got all of Sirio's messages, etc. And this one becomes Sansa's. Not for too long, but it does serve that through the book. And it serves as a constant reminder to return home. Come to the Godswood. The Godswood is the, the northern thing. That's her connection to Winterfell. Uh, so to return there, both physically and spiritually, that's is saying if you want to go home, become northern again. I think that's what that message eventually becomes in her head. And we're going to see that in Storm when she gets to the area and starts really thinking about Winterfell and going home. And hopefully we'll see more and more of it in the Winds of Winter and further on. Now about that note, she eventually throws it into the fire and it just reminds me of Catelyn doing the same thing way back at the beginning of Game of Thrones when Lysa's note comes. Just has me thinking of that. Just two more notes to go for this chapter. Don Tossi's obviously a bit of a knob. He's selling out this poor girl for lying to her and promising all these things of going home and really just wants some money to get drunk. But I think he's actually quite comparable to Theon, if we think about it. We get a lot about Theon and the the after effects of his being a ward, etc. And hey, Dontos has been a ward essentially his whole life after he arrived from Duskendale and only because Barry saved him. And the difference between Theon and Dontos was at least Theon's family, for the most part, was still alive, if far away. Dontos, all his relatives were executed by the Mad King for all that defiant stuff. So it's not really surprising he ended up needing booze as a crutch. Um, and I also do wonder, how much interaction do you think he had with Sir Barry growing up? If uh, Barristan fought so heavily to have Dontos spared, I wonder if, while they were both in the Red Keep together, if they still connected, if Barristan checked up on him. Never mentioned, but interesting to know. And finally, we learn here, I think it's for the first time we learn here, that Titus Lannister was once attacked by a lion when Sandor gives that, or lioness actually I think it is, Sandor gives the explanation of how his house came to be. So Titus is killed by a lion. Remind me who it is who kills Tywin again? Hmm. Lovely little connection. Okay, I have five then. We're running through, we're running through. And this is the one where unfortunately it's the, the day or a couple of days after their defeat by the men of Amory Lorch and they've had to run away. And in this one they're trying to survive on their own and eventually they get captured by the mountains men. Oh dear, oh dear. So it is good of George to have given Yoren such an ending where they find him with like a bunch of bodies around him. That's nice at least, but still pretty sad uh, that Yoren had to die. Uh, I think, as he's mentioned, the uh, the connection I've thought of before, between I wanting to kick Yoren and wanting to kick Desmond, but it's also maybe it's just a warning that Yoren has found his end here because Dontos has just promised Sansa this the same thing that he can take her home, and we've just how now we've just seen how even Yoren has failed in that task, so we don't think we should be putting that much faith into Dontos. And I was learning these very similar lessons to Sansa now as 
sectors who are they're going to leave or die or not be trustworthy they're very similar in that uh, in that part of their arcs uh, we talked the last few chapters last few higher chapters about this brotherhood unity and how they were all quick to defend um well they didn't know it's gendry but quick to defend yeah, whoever else and stick together unfortunately that's that's gone i think there was two adults that had survived the fight with the lannisters and they hung around for a little bit but then they ditched the kids and it not not even ditched really they've pretty much murdered them because they take all the stuff as well it's kind of harsh they know the odds that they're giving these kids it is a death sentence really considering their surroundings and Aya and Gendry they have the same choice a little bit later on regarding Lomi and uh, who's injured and Weasel who's obviously no help to anyone because she's so young and but they ultimately stay and they still have their humanity at this point so he sees on that because it's really the only kind of positive in this chapter to be honest with you I don't think I can even recall a time where I thought I would uh, eventually return would eventually win through and return home via the Riverlands but for many first time readers I doubt they expected another book and a half of her basically just being in the same area I don't think anyone would have guessed that I would stand two full books basically wandering around the same section of the Riverlands uh, that's it, all I've got on that chapter. So let's keep going for Tyrion 5. Let's really try and uh, push this thing through. So Tyrion 5. So Tyrion 5, this is where he's talking to the, the Guild of the Alchemists about wildfire and again thinking about that coming battle. And he also sees a prophet or a preacher on the way back to the Red Keep and it, the chapter ends with him arguing with Cersei again because uh, the outcome of his previous trick, the trick of free, uh, comes to bear fruit. Now, I really like that Tyrion has the idea of the like the paint pots and practicing throwing the wildfires. Just these little details of why him and and George are so beloved is is the the real thinking of the nitty gritty. And to be fair, listening to uh, Helene, I think that's how you pronounce it, the pyromancer's name, listening to him and taking his advice is a really good great example of one of Tyrion's best political strengths is that he can listen and take on board what people are saying, take information, which Cersei, obviously terrible, actually just can't put any trust in anything, and Ned wasn't brilliant on either, but Tyrion, it really does work for him. Now the Guild, they've got to be just pure evil, right, really, considering what they're up to with uh, Ares, and Tyrion should probably consider who he's getting into bed here with here, but I guess the situation is becoming so dire that he doesn't really have many options now like i said on the way back from the uh guild hall they see a preacher and he's obviously not saying particularly flattering things of Tyrion or the lannisters in general and he's really going to set the tone for the bread riots coming a little bit later on and for Tyrion being the most hated lannister and mixing this with the food news i, I know i keep saying about this in, in today's episode but it really is a, a major theme i mean we've we've got further news of joffrey telling the the people to eat their dead again he's sowing his own seeds of his whole regime's downfall but the this preacher person he's setting up the the people tearing apart their own high septon and this it's the first drip drop of religion really really coming to the forefront and feast and this, this is where the uh the faith militant and the high sparrow this we can trace that back to this kind of sentiment and again it, it's the lannister's fault it's joffrey's fault uh, last one for this chapter Given what we know of Cersei's marriage to Robert and and that she was kind of happy with, with that match, even at the time, or before the facts, basically, before she before their wedding night, Cersei was okay with Robert, even if she really wanted Rhaegar, but okay, Robert's not too bad a choice, it would seem. 
it is absolutely understandable that she doesn't want Marcella to go and suffer through potentially that again in Dawn. But they don't even, at least Cersei knew of Robert Baratheon, but she doesn't obviously knows very little about Tristane Martell and doesn't trust them whatsoever. So we can understand why Cersei feels that way and why she argues with Tyrion about it so much. And I mean, Cersei was in a city surrounded by friends and family and hated it. Marcella is going to be in a foreign, completely different foreign land with just uh, Aerys Oatheart, who's not brilliant to look after her. So it does make sense why Cersei feels that way. Okay, let's end today with Bran Free, which is the Harvest Feast. Uh, all those people that got introduced last chapter, they're all there having a good time. And we get to know the Reeds as well. So major introduction today for those two characters. And again, as he's, he got to the majority of my, more than half actually of my notes, so I don't have that many here. But the Reeds, differing vowels, they, they got these rather unique little vowels and they get right down to it. There's no messing around. They talk about the offering of safety and shelter and that first represents what's happening at the feast here. It's the offering of safety and shelter, isn't it? And this, you know, everyone's being welcomed and protected by Winterfell, which the castle it is their great saviour come, win come winter time. And the reeds are mirroring that back to Bran as the most important part of their relationship, that give and take. So the, the reeds really remember what it's all about, the loyalty to the Starks and why they are why they are so loyal to those, that family. And the fire and ice part, I know as he spoke about this, but it makes me think that the reeds maybe know about the pact and the, the last coming of the others. And they know the uh, nuts and bolts of that kind of agreement, but I... I, I I'm digressing again. Now there is a quote, let me say it. It's, uh, he had refused to let anyone cut it since their mother had gone. And that's talking about Rickon and his hair. And that struck out to me this time. It's a similarity between Rickon and his cousin, uh, Robert, Sweet Robin, because that's exactly what he does in uh, Feast for Crows. After Lysa's been murdered, he refuses to let anyone cut his hair. So a nice little connection there. And lastly, up on the dais, Lord Wyman attacked a steaming prate a steaming plate of lampreys as if they were an enemy host. And hey, it's not the last time pies and enemies will be connected for Wyvern Mandalay. Okay, that is it, everybody. I apologise again that my voice sounds even worse than usual. I had hoped that it would clear up by now, but we have to work with what we've got. And uh, apologies for the short episode, but I didn't want to subject you to it too much. And it is Saturday, so I have next week's episode to get ready for and that pesky little castle spoke to be getting on with. So, tune in tomorrow with uh, History of Westeros for part five of, yeah, wow, we're nearly halfway through. It is flying past. I don't know why uh, Clash of Kings seems so much faster than Game of Thrones to me. But it's getting up there. So, and as always, thank you to our patrons for supporting us. Thank you to all of you for listening in. And do get in touch if you ever want to. We would love to hear from you. And also, thank you. People have been saying, I hope, um, or they hope, Lady Buckley feels better because she is uh, under the weather very much at the moment. More so than I, with my just my cold that I'm making a big deal out of. She's much worse. But thank you for those uh, kind thoughts. They are very much appreciated. Okay, everybody, I will say goodbye now. I will shut up now and we'll speak to you again soon. Have a great day.